Father, speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. We read, and then he, speaking of Jesus, went out again by the sea, and the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Our scene of activity here is very simple. Jesus has not left the region of Galilee. He is more likely in the city of Capernaum. He's by the shore. Mark tells us he goes by the sea. The multitudes come to Jesus and he teaches them. Now, my first observation from just this one verse is simple. Jesus wasn't limited. He didn't limit his teaching ministry to just the synagogue. Now, though Jesus commonly taught from the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, Mark has made it clear that Jesus' teaching ministry was not solely limited to the Jewish house of worship. As we've already seen, Jesus has taught a Bible study from the home of Peter. We looked at that last week. In this passage, he is outside by the shore, sitting in his beach chair, teaching the word. I love that. No doubt, with the larger crowds coming to listen, and Jesus is in a season of ministry known as the age of popularity, that Jesus was constantly looking for, without a doubt, larger venues that could provide some natural vocal acoustics and plenty of space. The shore provided both. Lots of space and, well, with the water at his back, there were natural acoustics so that everyone could hear what he was saying. This is why Jesus would teach from the seashore and also on the side of mountains. Now, I know on the surface, this might seem like a very elementary point. Okay, Zach, great. Jesus didn't limit his teaching ministry to the synagogue. Great, wonderful, nice observation. I know this might seem simple, and it might even be a trivial observation, but here's my point, and I think it's a powerful point we would be amiss to overlook. If Jesus didn't limit his teaching to the synagogue, or in our case, let's just say, he doesn't limit his teaching to a church building, then maybe we shouldn't limit our study to a physical location either. It's sad, but so many Christians limit their study of the Bible to just church. But may I ask, if Jesus is always looking for chances to teach, whether it's there at the, the shore of the sea or on a mountaintop, if he's looking for opportunities, shouldn't we be ready for opportunities to learn? My first point of observation, the application, it's very simple. Jesus isn't limited to where he teaches, so we shouldn't be limited to where we're open or available to learn. Maybe this week you should take your Bible to school. Maybe even take your Bible to work. Read a chapter with your children before bed, with your wife over breakfast. Maybe even take an opportunity on your lunch break to just open up God's word and to, God is not limited in where he teaches. Where he finds a willing audience Jesus is always willing to provide a message. Now, my second observation is that the best resort is in Jesus. 
Now, I love the way that the old King James translates this passage, this verse. The old King James version, it reads, and he went forth again by the seaside and all the multitude resorted unto him and he taught them. I love this word resorted. You know, it indicates that the people who came to hear Jesus that day came to him not because they were bored, not because they were looking for something to do. They didn't come to Jesus because, you know, the ball game wasn't on or they had already plowed through the DVR. They came to Jesus out of a deeper longing of the soul. That's what this word resorted indicates, that the motivation of the crowd there to listen to Jesus they were there out of a pure motivation, a pure sincerity of heart. They came so that Jesus' words might satisfy and might quench a deep longing and a deep spiritual thirst. When Jess and I went on our honeymoon, we decided to go to one of those all-inclusive resorts down in the Dominican Republic. We wanted to go to a resort because we didn't want to deal with all the typical hassles of travel and vacation. Sometimes taking a vacation is more work than just staying at home. Have you ever felt that way? Figuring out where to eat, figuring out where to stay, figuring out what to do, it can be taxing, especially for a man. We wanted, okay, I wanted, an all-inclusive resort so that I, I could just get myself there and our host would take care of everything else so that I could just sit back, relax, not have to worry, not have to think, not have to plan, not have to figure out the next move, that I could just eat when I wanted to eat, sit out the beach when I wanted to sit out, or take a nap when it felt leisurely. An all-inclusive resort, our only job, was to get ourselves there, and then everything else was taken care of by the host. But you know the problem we ran into? Aside from the fact that my wife got sun poisoning and her forehead swelled up, and coming back, she looked like an alien, literally. She lost all definition in her nose. We're walking through Hartsfield, and people are staring and pointing like I have beaten the daylights out of her. It was miserable. Aside from that problem... <laughs> You know, the, the one thing that was frustrating is that it came to an end. I mean, we've never gone to a, an all-inclusive resort. We, we've never been able to afford to go to an all-inclusive resort since. It was a one-time shot. It was a one-time thing. We had to come home. It was temporary. It was short-lived. But do you realize that that experience of a resort, you know, that's what these people we're going for? That's what the, the, the idea being presented indicates, that they, in the midst of their lives, in the midst of their busyness, in the midst of the hectic nature at home, that they heard Jesus was on the, the seashore, and they were like, let's go and take a resort in Jesus. How cool is that? That they went, and his words were so satisfying, their only job was just to get there, and guess what? The host took care of everything else. Jesus was a location that the people could resort in, that they could go to. It was a vacation spot. You know, when the day grows long and the hectic nature of life 
begins to weigh you down, do you realize that you have an all-inclusive resort in Jesus? That you can take a break, retreat into his word, and be encouraged and be blessed. A resort in Jesus. Well, we continue. And as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Now, on a side note, for the student of Scripture, if you begin to put some things together, you will also find in the list of disciples of Jesus that Levi, the son of Alphaeus, there's also a James, the son of Alphaeus. There was multiple Jameses. There was James and John, sons of Zebedee. There was Levi and then James, who were they were both seen to have be sons of Alphaeus. They're not brothers. I, I did some extensive research into this just because it, it striked a curiosity within myself. Because all of the gospel writers seem to make an indication when someone's brothers, like Andrew and Peter and James and John, but then we get to Levi or, or, or Matthew, Levi and, and this other James, though they're sons of Alphaeus, there's probably no connection. But this man, regardless, he's sitting at the tax office. And Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Jesus, our scene of activity, he's finished his sermon there on the shore. He's making his way. We can, we can conclude presumably that he's making his way back to Peter's house, which was his headquarters there in Capernaum. Our, our text doesn't say that, but it seems to be an implication. Another passage dealing with this same section of scripture say that the tax office was there in Capernaum, and so it seems like you can put all this together. Jesus is making his way home, and he sees Levi. Mark is clear. And according to Mark, without hesitation, Jesus kind of goes out of his way, and he calls Levi to be one of his followers. With equal resolve and immediacy, Levi hears the call, and he responds. He accepts the invitation. He leaves everything behind. And we're told he follows Jesus. You know, my first observation here is that Jesus calls very interesting people to be his followers. As mentioned, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, was also known historically as Matthew. He would not only be one of the 12 apostles, but would later write a narrative of Jesus' life similar to Mark, known as the Gospel of Matthew. That's our character here in the story. Though only one verse, interestingly enough, we do learn a lot about Levi or Matthew from this passage. By his namesake, we can conclude that Matthew was a Jew, ethnically, and he contained probably a priestly heritage, being a descendant of Levi, placing him in the priestly tribe of Levi. Because of his occupation, as a tax collector, we can also conclude that Matthew was an educated man. To be a tax collector, you would need to be skilled in arithmetic. You would need to be literate in both Aramaic as well as Greek. We can also conclude that Matthew was a Democrat. I mean, aren't all Democrats tax collectors, right? Just kidding. I can pause longer to see if there's more splattering of Never mind. We know 
that Matthew's wealthy. And we also know that he was hated. Now, how do we know he was hated? Because tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors, collected taxes on behalf of the occupying Roman government. Don't forget that. That all of our characters are subjugated people. They've been conquered. There is another nation ruling over them. The Romans. And to be a Jew collecting taxes from your brethren for the Romans, this occupying group of people, didn't build a bridge. It didn't like earn goodwill. He was hated. As a matter of fact, Jewish tax collectors were viewed by their brethren as traitors and extortioners. The common perspective was that they had betrayed the people of God for the almighty buck. Now let me explain to you for a moment how a tax collector made his living. First, the job of tax collector wasn't a job that you applied for upon merit. It wasn't as though you filled out your resume and the most uh, educated, equipped person to be a tax collector was chosen. As a matter of fact, these very limited positions were auctioned off to the highest bidder. Matthew had to purchase the position. He had to buy the power. He had to put in significant personal investment to be a tax collector. Secondly, Matthew was then given a figure by his boss for what he needed to bring back on a monthly basis. Now, these figures were not disclosed to the public, and they could vary depending on the season, the person, or the occasion, how much money the boss actually needed. Now, the third thing is that anything you brought in as a tax collector above and beyond the figure that the boss gave you was pure profit. That's how you got paid. That's how you made a living. Matthew literally made his living gouging, ripping off, even intimidating people. If someone refused to pay or ante up when it came to Matthew, he could have the Roman soldiers who were available to be his muscle. He could intimidate and bully. You know, in my mind, we often really confuse who Matthew was, who he really was, when we call him a tax collector, for whatever reason, and I'm guilty of this, that, that we've developed this mental picture when we think of Matthew as a book nerd, little man, sitting behind his desk, counting coin in like this obsessive, compulsive manner. But do you realize that there's very little historical data to substantiate this perspective of a tax collector? When we think of a tax collector, we typically think of Ben Stein. We typically think of this guy, Ben Stein from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a really geeky, nerdy, accountant-like, like just a really kind of a weird, goofy kind of a person. However, this is not an accurate portrayal of Matthew. This morning, I want you to instead see Matthew not as Ben Stein, but being more like a Polly Walnuts from The Sopranos. Okay, th this, is, this is who I want you to have in your mind when you're thinking about Matthew. He's not the book nerd accountant. He's basically a first century gangster. 
I mean, did you not think about that when I'm, when I'm running through how a tax collector made his living? He bought the power. His boss gave him a figure. He goes around gouging people to get more than the figure so he could go back, pay his boss. Whatever was left was for his pockets. If someone didn't pay up, he had muscle that could go and break some kneecaps, right? I mean, Matthew was a gangster. He was a loan shark. He was the kind of guy, he was like a lieutenant in a very complex mob family. Now, with this in mind, with this in mind, Matthew was guilty of more than just ripping people off. Cross Matthew, and you might have found yourself being fed to the fishes. That's Matthew. The disdain, the pure hatred for tax collectors was so deep in this culture that the Jewish community would excommunicate Matthew from the temple. He would not be allowed into the local synagogue. And when it was all said and done, he couldn't have cared at all. This man, Matthew, was tough. He was no nonsense. He was not someone to be crossed or to be trifled with. When Jesus, when Jesus called Jewish fishermen to be his disciples, I'm sure it no doubt raised a few eyebrows. It was unconventional. But when Jesus called Matthew, when he saw Levi and he called Levi to follow him, it left the people present in complete disbelief. This Jewish rabbi calling Polly Walnuts to be his follower. I mean, though unconventional, at least Andrew, Peter, James, and John, at least these guys were good boys. Maybe they weren't the smartest people, but at least they were honest. They were religious. They made their living doing something noble, something sincere. They worked with their hands for a living. When Jesus called Matthew to follow him, he was purposefully adding a traitorous, notorious, anti-religious poly walnuts to his inner circle. And to make matters worse, recent archaeological data has shown that on the shore of Galilee, there was believed to have been a special tax on fish. When you would bring your fish to the shore, there would be a tax booth there. They would count the fish and give you a tax immediately upon the fish. It's interesting to think that the other disciples not only knew Matthew, but had been personally ripped off, intimidated by Matthew. They grew up in the same neighborhood. Can you imagine Peter's reaction when Jesus calls Matthew to be his follower? You know, in one and a half chapters of Mark's gospel, we learn that Jesus not only calls the common man to follow him, to be a disciple, but he also chooses the deviant. Think about it for a moment. If Jesus would call Matthew to follow him, to be his disciple, there's not one person in this room that can be excluded Jesus, 
actions do speak louder than words. And who do we see going out of his way to be, be a part of what he was doing? Fisherman, the common man, and Levi, the scumbag. My second observation here is that Jesus clearly sees people differently. I mean, that's the only explanation for what's happening here. We're told that before Jesus called Levi, look back at the verse. Before Jesus called Levi, and before Levi accepted the invitation, notice something that happens first. We're told very specifically that Jesus first saw Levi. You have to wonder, what did he see? If Jesus saw people and therefore evaluated people the way that you and I do, the way that we do, there's not a chance that Jesus would have called Matthew to have been his follower. Don't forget, Jesus isn't starting his own crime family or his own crime syndicate. It's not like a, a rival gang. Like there's no way Jesus would have called Matthew to be part of his crew if Jesus was evaluating people the way that we do. He would have seen Matthew as a hardened, tough, possibly cold, detached, Polly Walnuts persona that Matthew, by the way, had carefully crafted to be good at his job. So when Jesus looked at Matthew, what did he see? I believe it's clear that Jesus saw more than Levi's outward appearance or outward persona. When Jesus looked over that day and he saw Levi sitting at the tax office, he saw a side of this man that no one else could see or would have ever wanted to see. Jesus, Jesus saw beyond the tough guy facade. And what, what did he do? Jesus peered through the outward appearance through the scowl, through the intimidation, through the pompadour, and he saw the man's heart. And what did Jesus see? Well, he saw a man mired in guilt and condemnation, a man in desperate need of salvation. Though he would never admit it to his friends, Matthew, he was lonely, he was empty, he was longing for something more, something better. And how do we know that from just one verse? Well, the proof is in Matthew's immediate reaction to Jesus' invitation. He saw him, and Jesus commanded him, follow me. And you know what Matthew did? He left it all behind, and he followed Jesus. Matthew heard the call, and he responded immediately to the invitation. And please, folks, it wasn't as though Matthew's decision wouldn't carry with it lifelong consequences. As a tax collector, the decision to follow Jesus would have major, long-lasting, lifelong implications for Matthew's life. Fishing. Fishing was a business you could return to if the Jesus thing didn't work out. Later on in the gospel narrative, they actually do return back to their nets, right? Fishing was a business, yes, they, they left it behind, they followed Jesus, but if Jesus didn't work out or if 
that kind of fell through. They always had fishing to go back to. Tax collecting, on the other hand, was not a game you could simply pick back up once you left it off. I mean, just like the mob. Once you're out, you're out for good. Now, not to go too far with the analogy. And I'll be honest, in my mind, I've been wanting to write a book titled The Spiritual Lessons I Learned by Watching the Sopranos. But, which would be an instant classic, I know. But as a tax collector, think about it, as a tax collector, the only way you could escape your old identity was by assuming a new identity. Maybe I watch too many gangster films, but you know the only way you can get out of the mob is to strike a deal with the feds, to go into witness protection, and to what? Assume a new identity elsewhere. Same dynamic with Levi, maybe without the FBI and witness protection, but you know what I mean. Jesus, Jesus gave Matthew in this moment an opportunity for a fresh start, a new beginning. With just a few words, Mark tells us that Matthew jumped at the opportunity. What opportunity was Jesus presenting him? It was the opportunity to leave behind the identity as tax collector for a new identity as a follower of Jesus. What did Jesus see that day? Aside from Matthew's spiritual longing, I am convinced, as he does with you and I, that Jesus saw even more than what presently existed in Matthew's life. As in Matthew's case and as in you and mine, I believe when Jesus invites a person to follow him, he extends the invitation, not based upon my past mistakes, but rather my future potential. And that moment, Jesus doesn't care who you are in sin, but rather who you'll be and become through his righteousness. When Jesus invites you and I to leave behind the old life in sin, he's inviting us to take a new life found in Christ. When he invites you to leave behind the person you once were, he's inviting you to become a person he desires to make you into to leave behind the fleeting things of this world for an eternal reward reserved forever. Matthew, he saw it as his chance and he didn't hesitate. My third observation, and yes, there's three observations from just this simple verse. Jesus' methods are really unpredictable. Sometimes when we look at stories like this one, we tend to isolate them. That's why I love going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible, because you can't isolate them. You have the context of what's come before, and you have the stories that come after. You can't isolate one story, because when you do, you often lose something fascinating. You know, if you really think about it for a moment, what we've been looking at for the last few weeks that spiritually speaking, Matthew, Matthew was both the leper and the lame man. Sin, like the leper, had taken its toll on his life, but like the lame man, 
Matthew was paralyzed to do anything about it. There's an interesting comparison here. But there is one distinction. I find it amazing that the leper, if you recall, desperately came to Jesus of his own accord. The lame man was lovingly brought to Jesus by four friends. But with Matthew, with Levi, Levi's not coming, running through a crowd, falling at Jesus' feet, desperately asking for cleansing. He doesn't have four buddies grab him by the arms and bring him to Jesus. He's at work. He's at his occupation. He is tax collecting. He is sitting there minding his own business. And it's Jesus that goes out of his way to approach Matthew. The leper came. The lame man was brought. But with Matthew, Jesus went. I love the fact that you can't put Jesus into a box. For some of us, we come to Jesus out of desperation. For some of us, we're tired of life and sin. And like the leper, we come to Jesus and we ask for cleansing if you're willing. Others of us are like the lame man. We're paralyzed in our sin. And we're stubborn when it comes to what Jesus can do in our lives. But in his grace, God uses our friends to pick us up out of our weakness, to love us through our lameness, and to bring us to the Savior for cleansing. Sometimes our friends are aware of the very need we're ignorant of. But then there's Matthew. Matthew is oblivious to sin's damaging effects. He's got no positive influence to point him the right direction. He's judged and been written off by the religious establishment around him. But Jesus... Jesus saw, and what did he see? He saw a need. And when the moment was right, Jesus comes to Matthew, he comes to Levi, he comes maybe to you and to I, and the most supernatural of circumstances. And in the darkness of our existence, we hear just a few words, follow me. Whether this morning you find yourself in that pew out of desperation or because a friend or a parent made you come or you're here really with no expectation at all, I hope you know that Jesus is speaking through the void with a very simple command, follow me. Now it happened. As Jesus was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. <laughs> the scene, this is awesome to me. This is unbelievable to me. Jesus calls Levi to follow him. Levi responds by accepting the invitation. Then Mark tells us, instead of heading back to Peter's house, Jesus accepts Levi's invitation to head over for dinner knowing that Jesus and his disciples, his followers, would be hanging out through the evening, Levi takes the liberty to invite all of his friends, all of his unsaved friends, to come for a party, to come hang out with Jesus. The result of the evening, Mark's clear, is that many of Levi's friends 
have the same encounter with Jesus that Matthew had had earlier that same day. Now, the simple observation. There should be two immediate results to following Jesus. First note, following Jesus, the the act of following Jesus, immediately resulted in Levi bringing Jesus home. So often, and, and this is why I think this is an important point, so often when we think of these early men responding to Jesus's call, we have in our minds that every aspect of their lives immediately changed. We often twist the idea that these men forsook all to follow Jesus in a way that simply isn't true. I've grown up with that idea that when these guys responded, follow me, it was like everything else in their lives, their homes, their occupations, the, the people, their friends, their family, they just like left it all. And for like three years, they just disappeared. They're running around with Jesus. But understand, this isn't true. I mean, as we've already seen, Peter responded to Jesus' call, didn't he? And what do we already know? He remained married, and he used his home as a place that Jesus could utilize when he came to Capernaum. Sure, Peter was transformed, but he didn't like put his house up for sale. He didn't give away everything. He didn't tell his wife, peace, adios, this is my chance for freedom. No. Everything kind of stayed the same, except for he was a totally different person because he was following Jesus. He was a disciple of Christ. Matthew, this man left behind his former identity. And yes, he was no longer a tax collector. But the first place that Levi brought Jesus, isn't it interesting? It was to his home. Please understand, Jesus saves us in order to transform us into a new creation. But this doesn't mean that he provides us an escape from our present circumstances. I think the first place, the first place when we come to the cross, we accept forgiveness, when we're transformed and redeemed by the power of his blood, when we've been made alive in Christ, the first place Jesus wants us to take that faith, that relationship, you know where he wants us to take it? He wants us to take it to the place that we're most familiar and most familiarized. He wants us to take it home. You know, if you really want to know how, how or who a person is, watch how they behave at home. I tell, I tell high school students this all the time. Because the reality is, okay, you come to church and you put on a good Christian face and you're respectful and submissive and you're not rebellious and, and you're a good kid, but when you go home, you're a total jerk to your mom, to your dad. You come up to the church, but you want to serve, you want to help out. Yeah, Zach, I'll take out the garbage. Yeah, I'll clean up the bathrooms. Yes, I'll vacuum. And then you go home and your mom asks you to take out the garbage or to vacuum or to clean a toilet and you're like, no, and you pitch a fit. Like, if you really want to know who a person is, you don't watch what they do outside of their home. You watch and observe what they do inside. Why? Because that's where we're comfortable. That's where we let down our guard. That's where who we are is really seen. Which is why when we encounter Jesus and we've been transformed by the power of his Holy Spirit, 
that you know, you know who needs to see it first? Your husband or your wife or your kids or your mom or your dad. That the first place Jesus wants to go when you start following him is not some other place. It's home. If you can't share your faith at home, if you can't shine the light of Christ at home, if you can't be Jesus' hands and feet at home, please don't try to do it outside the four walls of your abode because that's fake. Do it there first. Now, the second thing, note that following Jesus also resulted in Levi exposing his friends to Christ. Jesus breaks the, the darkness, breaks the silence, speaks into this void in Levi's heart. Follow me. He drops everything. I'm done with this. I'm following you. Hey, come to my house. And they get over there and then he's on the phone calling all of his friends. Come over. You'll never believe what just happened to me, who I just met, what he's done for me. You see, following Jesus resulted in Levi exposing his friends to Christ. Matthew didn't hide his new relationship with Jesus from his friends. He wasn't timid as to what they might think or, or what they might say. It seems we can conclude Matthew's life had been so radically changed by Jesus that sharing Jesus with the lost people he cared deeply for was the only natural, loving thing to do. He didn't care what they thought. He wanted to bring them to Jesus. And what, what happens? Levi's friends arrived that night as sinners. But how did they leave? They left as followers of Christ. Levi following Jesus, it transformed his home and it impacted his relationships. Now, I think it's sad that most new Christians are encouraged, they're exhorted by many well-meaning believers to immediately change their environment and their associations when they give their life to Christ. It's almost as though you respond to the invitation and the first thing we tell you to do is cut ties with everyone you knew before. Instead of seeking to be a presence for Christ in our current circumstances, family or work, or the world at large, or to be a presence for Christ in the lives of our non-Christian friends and family in so many ways as Christians, whether it's right upon salvation or as we continue to walk with Christ, we end up isolating and insulating from sinners and the very places we've been called to influence. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to go to an extreme here. There are occasions where there's a certain level of isolation and insulation that might be necessary to your own spiritual well-being. I mean, it's true that bad company corrupts good morals. But let me challenge you to maybe think about this in a different way. You know, in regards to our environment, think about it. If Jesus desired, if his intention was for his followers to live in some Christian utopia where the only human interactions we have is with other Christians. Like we buy an island, we all move there, and we have Christian school and Christian music and Christian movies, 
Christian bonfires where we sing Christian songs. That if Jesus just wanted our human relationships to be limited to just some Christian utopia, don't you think he would have already called us home to heaven? I mean, if that's what his desire is. Because guess what happens in heaven? You're just with believers. Like, no chance to witness. No chance to shine your light. The light exists. It's Jesus. No chance to be an influence. No chance to be salt. No chance to make an impact in the world. You're in heaven. You see, if Jesus wanted our environment to simply be a Christian utopia where we play on Christian cheerleading squads and we do Christian soccer and everything we do is never exposing us to the world that needs Jesus. You know, we've been called. We've been called. Your job, and I'm not making this up, your job is to be light in a dark world. Do you know light has a really hard time doing anything distinct in a well-lit room? It's like there's a dark world and we as light just bundle up. <laughs> See, the truth is, is, is in order for us to shine our light into dark areas, sometimes that requires us being in dark areas. Yes, we shouldn't conform to the world around us. And I'm not saying that. But we shouldn't run from the world around us. Why? Because that defeats the purpose of Christ. If Jesus is our leader, right, and we're following him and we're trying to emulate our lives after his, guess what Jesus did? Ultimately, the light which was in heaven came into the darkness, which was the earth. Jesus came among sinners. If Jesus dealt with things like, his Christ, like Christians do, he would have never come. If we're to fulfill the calling of Christ, we should find ourselves into the environments where we can seek to transform. We should seek to reach the world around us. We should interact with the world around us. We should be relevant to the world around us. We should seek for Jesus to transform the world around us. How? Through the presence of Jesus working in and through our lives so that it can be visibly seen. Now, in regards to our friends and our associations, if Jesus desired his followers to only have relational connections with other believers who thought and believed what and the way we do? If like Jesus only wants you around people who agree with you and believe the same things you do, once again, why are we even here at that point? Like we're not gonna have a lot of like theological debates in heaven. Like we're not gonna powwow with all of our Christian brothers and sisters in heaven and if Jesus wanted that, wanted only your relationships to be with other Christians, then why are you here? You know, Jesus has called us, interestingly enough, to make disciples of the nations. Yes, bad company corrupts good morals, but if you only interact with other Christians, who can you possibly reach with the gospel? We've been called to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus. 
We've been called to be salt in a flavorless world, desperately in need of something real and true. You've been called to practically be the Lord's hands and feet in the world around us. Levi, the first two places, he brings Jesus home and he calls up all of his friends. As Christians, maybe we need to get out of our bubble. Our bubble. You know what I mean by a bubble. Because often we find ourselves there. And I'm speaking personally. My business is about Christians. Equipping Christians, teaching Christians, counseling Christians, hanging out with Christians. But I need an outlet where I can talk to non-Christians. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that takes a step of faith. This morning, I encourage you, in a couple ways, once again, God's speaking from his word. As Christians, maybe we should reevaluate what we're doing. You know, Jesus was a partier. He was. He was always going to parties. But guess what? Every party Jesus went to, guess what happened? The party radically changed because of the presence of Jesus. You're to have friends that aren't Christians, but guess what? You're to influence them for Christ. And as soon as you see that that's not happening or no longer happening, and instead you're being influenced the other direction, well, maybe that's a time to move on. But we're to be light and we're to be salt. So you got to get out of your bubble. So I exhort you to that. But secondly, this morning, Matthew heard a call. He heard Jesus issue a command. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of persona you put out there. If Jesus could call Matthew to follow him, if Jesus would want to call Matthew to follow him, you have not fallen short of the glory of God that Jesus is speaking into your life with the same two words, follow me. And so this morning, if you have not responded to that call, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to say a prayer here. I'd love to lead you in a prayer, and that would be fine. It wasn't as though that here Jesus turned and said, Matthew, follow me. And then Matthew got on his knees. Jesus said, now repeat after me. We don't see that here, do we? I mean, that's, that's what we often think of, like giving your life to Jesus. Now say this magic bean prayer, and, and it'll grow roots, and magic bean stock to heaven. Now, there's confession, and there's making a declaration. That's all true. But once again, actions speak louder than words. For some people, it's just words. When Jesus is interested in action, how do we know that Matthew responded to the invitation? His life changed. He started following Jesus. And this morning, I know Jesus is speaking. And I'd love to pray with you. That's, that's great and encourage you. That's fine. But regardless, responding is walking out those doors following Jesus. And then taking Jesus home 
and exposing your friends to the very thing that's changed your life. As mentioned, I know it's just three verses. I know rapid fire pace here through Mark. But this is actually a wonderful place for us to stop because in response to Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, there's a whole religious system that's observing it and questioning it, has some problems with it. And kind of the rest of the chapter deals with this interaction between Jesus and these scribes and these Pharisees. Jesus and religion, really. Jesus deals with this. We deal with it. That's the subject matter for the rest of the chapter. So it's a good spot for us to pause, for us to break. So Lord, we thank you for your word. 